Parents should note that this episode contains discussions of topics that younger audience members may find distressing. If anyone finds this podcast brings up difficult feelings, I encourage you to contact your local crisis line and reach out for further support. Please check the episode notes for a link to a website that has collected all of these resources in one place. central question to these discussions is whether or not Hare Krishnas are Hindu. Some Hindus consider them to be a continuation of the Vaishnava sect of Hinduism, while others take issue with the ways that Hare Krishna teachings divert from Hinduism and thus consider them distinct and separate. Number one, for the most part, Hare Krishnas don't consider themselves to be Hindu. Number two, they are essentially monotheistic. They believe that Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and every other incarnation is a weaker version of him. While Hinduism is polytheistic and sees devotion to any of the hundreds of deities as valid. Number three, Hare Krishnas actively proselytize to gain new members and raise money, which goes against what a lot of other Hindus feel is appropriate. While Prabhupada was in the successive line of Vaishnava Hindu gurus, in bringing his beliefs to America, he both distorted them for an unfamiliar audience and inserted many of his own unique beliefs into the structure of the new group, distorting it from its original meaning and purpose. When you initially hear about him, it can be hard to understand the hold he had and continues to have on thousands of devotees around what made these Americans and eventually people of other nationalities stop in their tracks, listen to what he had to say, and dedicated their lives to furthering his causes. I think his striking appearance was one of the first things that grabbed people's attention. His hooded, sleepy eyes and serious, downturned mouth gave the impression that he was always deep in thought. His shaved head signaled to the Americans that he was a monk of some kind. Other than shawls or jumpers, every item of clothing he owned was on the peachy spectrum between pink and orange. He adorned his face and body with a special ceremonial clay called tilak. His right hand was often covered by a tiny cloth bag that contained special counting beads, kind of like rosary beads, called japa beads. Basically, he was visually signaling to anyone who saw him that he was an Indian Swami. Another factor was his incredible charisma that had people wanting to be around him and listen to what he had to say. People would meet him once and declare they'd met an enlightened being. He also had a low, rumbly, deliberate way of speaking that added an air of authority and certainty to whatever he said. This means that many people automatically took on board whatever he had to say without considering whether or not it was actually what they originally wanted. An early devotee named Hayagrivdas said that Prabhupada told him, quote, you don't need to take anything for your spiritual life. He was talking about drugs. And then he just agreed and stopped taking it. He thought Prabhupada was in a state of exalted consciousness and was hoping, quote, somehow he could teach the process to me. The people who showed up to the first temple in New York were generally teenagers and young adults who were experimenting with spirituality as an alternative to post-war conservatism. They were often unemployed and had few plans in life, meaning they could easily drop everything and dedicate their lives fully to his cause. They were uniquely vulnerable, seeking community and guidance. Like an army recruiter looking for fresh young recruits, Prabhupada targeted them specifically. Quote, I think what you are calling hippies are our best potential. 
Although they are young, they are already dissatisfied with material life, frustrated, and not knowing what to do, they turn to drugs. So let them come, and we will show them spiritual activities. To create the reliable structure the young, wayward attendees desperately needed, Prabhupada set up morning walks for the most serious of the devotees that began at 6am. Hayagreev explained that, quote, None of us had ever gotten up before 10 or 11 in the morning. But the magnetism of Srila Prabhupada drew us out. After some chanting, quote, he would give a copy of the Bhagavad Gita to one of us and have us read the Sanskrit transliterations, correcting our mispronunciations, and then the text. Then he would begin to explain each verse thoroughly. In this way, he was able to play a fatherly role of getting them out of bed in the morning. He also taught them how to cook, what clothes to wear, and how to live a good devotional life. As well as being a father replacement, he took on a teacher role, correcting their speech and offering definitive understandings of the text that he shared with them. This set up a power dynamic in which the much older Prabhupada was in a position of authority over the young adults, who did whatever he commanded. Having known them less than a year, Prabhupada initiated his first disciples in September 1966 in New York. From the beginning, he emphasized that, quote, Whatever we have, it doesn't matter what, we must offer it for Krishna's service. This meant that these aimless young people's lives were given a clear, spiritually sanctified life path, as their involvement with the community, however small, was directly in service to Krishna. Conveniently, Prabhupada set himself up as the one who decided what was and wasn't serving Krishna, which meant that he was the gatekeeper to that sense of purpose, boost of confidence, and sense of overall well-being. Securing the property at 22nd Avenue in Manhattan was what allowed Prabhupada to establish a base for his movement which would allow him to spread his message in a planned, structured way. In a later article of their self-published magazine, Back to Godhead, the biography of a pure devotee, Satsvarupa Das explains the reasoning behind renting a property. Prabhupada, quote, did not attach great importance to giving speeches in places where people gathered to hear him once and then went away. This was the main reason he wanted a New York building, so that people would regularly come. This repeated contact with devotees enabled Prabhupada to influence their perception and desires to align with his goals. He also admitted that the idea of a temple was to attract people to Krishna by the temple's opulence, and that the shabby apartment he had rented after staying with Dr. Misra could, quote, not even euphemistically be called a temple. He couldn't attract an adoring following with what he had, so he rented a larger and more impressive space. The first day he moved into the new property, he held a meeting and eight people attended. From then on, he held evening classes on every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 7 p.m., and the attendance began to slowly grow. He began the gatherings by establishing his command over followers, having them sit on the floor and face him. He trained them to respond in the call and response style singing and, and lectured to them from the Holy Scriptures. The entire service lasted around two hours, and then he would serve some kind of free food at the end, which was a draw for both poor students and business people on their way home from work. He would lay out a bowl at the end of his lectures with the expectation that attendees would give some money as a donation. Although he had a nice worship space set up, he needed to attract more followers if he was going to push his message into the cultural consciousness and collect more devotees. One of the first things he did was have thousands of flyers printed, which he then gave to early attendees in big bundles to hand out to everyone they met. This is what they said. 
Practice the transcendental sound vibration. This chanting will cleanse the dust from the mirrors of the mind. After that, Prabhupada's name, the name of the organization, the address, times of the meetings, 7 a.m. daily and 7 p.m. Monday, Wednesday and Friday. At the bottom, he encouraged, you are cordially invited to come and bring your friends. This gave the impression of a warm, welcoming, open-minded space for spiritual healing and exploration. At this point, he had an established following, but he needed to push things further. With the few followers he had, he set up a DIY publishing center in the temple. On the 23rd of December 1966, his followers published the first issue of Back to Godhead magazine. It was 32 pages in landscape aspect ratio, black and white on printed paper, and featured only one illustration on the cover. It sold for 15 cents or $3 for a yearly subscription. Despite these humble beginnings, it's been running ever since. The printing, circulation, and editing were all done by male devotees. Very early on, Prabhupada's efforts caught the attraction of countercultural celebrities. On the New York Parks website, there's an entry on Tonkin Square. It says, On October 1966, Prabhupada and his followers sat beneath this tree and held the first outdoor chanting session outside of India. And that Prabhupada's diverse group that day included beat poet Allen Ginsberg. It was the beginning of Hare Krishna gurus courting the favor of celebrities to increase their own fame and attract more followers. If 1966 was when Prabhupada established ISKCON, 1967 is when its influence began to truly spread. On January 17th, he flew to San Francisco with his faithful devotees for the first time. Prabhupada's first trip was recounted by Hayagrib Das in Swami in Hippie Land on the Movement.org. Ginsburg was there at the airport to greet devotees and helped Prabhupada liaise with the press. Prabhupada put out the usual platitudes that, quote, everyone, including you or anyone else, whatever you are, what you call an asset head or hippie or whatever, what you are doesn't matter. Once you are accepted for training, you will change. This was the kind of relaxed, open-minded image that the Swami liked to project. Only once a person was attending services regularly would he reveal the strict restrictions devotees are supposed to abide by. This trickle truthing continued far beyond the basic initiation. The deeper one's involvement with the temple was, the more potentially shocking and dangerous ideas were revealed to members. Ginsburg and Prabhupada differed on the acceptability of taking hallucinogens. Ginsburg felt it helped reach greater states of enlightenment, and Prabhupada felt it was an intoxicant and forbade it. Of course, we are conservative in that sense. That means we are following Shastra, which means scriptures. We cannot depart from the Bhagavad Gita. Whereas Ginsburg touted Hare Krishna early morning worships for those coming down from LSD who want to stabilize their consciousness upon re-entry and called the temple an important community service. This difference in opinion did not prevent Prabhupada from accepting Ginsburg's help. An early devotee, Makunda Das, and his wife, Janaki Dasi, had rented the Frederick Street storefront in San Francisco for the devotees to use as a base. It was set up similarly to the New York Temple. Candles and incense created a dreamy, spiritual atmosphere, and next to the altar, a raised platform for Prabhupada to sit on and preach to his devotees. Clippings from the successes of the movement were stuck to the walls. It was in this small temple that the devotees put the finishing touches on a huge benefit concert called Mantra Rock Dance to both raise awareness and, more importantly, money to create a proper San Francisco temple. Big names were involved. 
Allen Ginsberg was to act as a host, and the Grateful Dead and Janis Joplin volunteered their time to the cause for free. Despite the fact that Prabhupada held a disdain for Western music and what he considered the influence of Maya, Prabhupada had grudgingly agreed. The event was held at the Avalon Theatre and began at 8pm with a raucous performance by the Grateful Dead. Prabhupada arrived during Janice Joplin's set at 10, covered in garlands. Pictures of Krishna popped up on a slideshow behind them as Prabhupada sat next to Allen Ginsberg. The bands arrived on stage and Prabhupada began to preach the most palatable version of his teachings, talking about the benefits of the Maha Mantra. He neglected to mention the strict restrictions devotees are expected to follow. When it ended, Prabhupada thanked the audience and left so that the rest of the bands could keep playing, and he told his followers, this is no place for a brahmachari. According to Hayagrivdas, the event raised $1,500, which would be around $12,000 today. Apparently, though, it wasn't good enough, just, quote, barely enough to resolve the temple debts. Despite Prabhupada and the devotees' dismissive view of the event, it was viewed by wider society as a resounding success. George D. Chrysides notes in Exploring New Religions that not only did the Mahamantra rock dance enable Krishna consciousness to gain wider public attention, but the event raised some $2,000 for the new San Francisco temple. $2,000 in 1967 would have the approximate buying power of around $16,000, which is nothing to sneeze at from one night of work. Now he had the funds, Prabhupada became a bit of a jet-setter, going back and forth from San Francisco to New York often. In late July, he took a trip home to India, traveling to all the towns that would later become important to devotees. Through Delhi, he went to Vrindavan, the birthplace of Krishna, and through Kolkata, he went to Navadweep, which is the birthplace of another incarnation of Krishna called Mahaprabhu. Then he traveled back to San Francisco in December 1967. The next big boost to Prabhupada and Iskon's popularity was when the Beatles, but specifically George Harrison, took an interest in the group. In 1968, Prabhupada sent a group of devotees to set up a temple in England. Chrysides explains that in 1968, George Harrison met a devotee at Apple Records. Iskon was deliberately trying to make contact with the group. George Harrison invited him back to his house and began attending a small makeshift temple in Covent Garden. This allowed Iskon to have a direct line to a member of one of the biggest rock groups in the world at the time. Then, in 1969, the Beatles hosted Prabhupada in England. Prabhupada and his devotees were hosted at John Lennon's Tittenhurst estate for three months until late December. Prabhupada gave frequent lectures and discussed theological matters with George Harrison, John Lennon, and Yoko Ono before returning to America. During this trip, Prabhupada talked to reporters, telling them, In the Western countries, I have got now about 20 centers, especially in America, Canada. So the American boys are very enthusiastic. After the Beatles split up, George Harrison became a prominent financier of ISKCON in England. An article on krishnatemple.com outlines his interactions with the temple. Quote, 
1970, George produced the Radha Krishna Temple album with the devotees. The album was released through the Beatles' Apple Records. George Harrison was friends with Bob Dylan, and at one of his shows on the 13th of August, one of the singles, Hare Krishna Mantra, was played over the PA. The song was also aired during the halftime during a Manchester United game. The single also received surprisingly extensive radio play, with it reaching number 12 in the UK. As the result of having a charting song, the Radha Krishna Temple were invited to appear on Top of the Pops and even filmed a video. They also played concerts and festivals in response to the song's popularity. George Harrison also donated funds to print one of Prabhupada's books, Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and he instructed a devotee to find some suitable land to build a temple on near London. They finally settled on some land and George donated the property to ISKCON in around 1972. The information regarding the amount of money donated by Harrison for the purchase of the temple and other contributions Harrison made is not publicly available. They named the temple Bhaktivedanta Manor. Prabhupada's new financial resources allowed him to build temples on the lands he was given or purchased. Many of these had on-site accommodations for members. Living on these ashrams allowed for a ramping up of the isolationism imposed on his devotees. It also allowed him to create a system in which members handed over complete control of their minds, bodies, and souls, and children, to be molded into the ultimate obedient helpers or true devotees.